there's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance, an economy of one. With Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One at Facebook. Well, you know, I wanted to spend a little time. Oh, coming up soon, coming up uh, a little later in the show, John Tamney. John Tamney, one of my favorites. He's the author of the new book, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. John Tamney, he'll be joining me uh, a little bit later in the show. I want to spend a little time today and talk about the fallout, as it were, and uh, some additional thoughts about Great Britain leaving the European Union. Uh, I got to tell you, the the vote kind of surprised me. I was all in favor of Britain leaving the European Union. I just didn't think it'd happen. I thought when George Soros and President Obama and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Warren Buffett and everybody else and their brother was out there saying how catastrophic it would be for Britain to leave the European Union. I figured the fix was in. I figured the votes were already counted, that the actual going to the polls for the British people was probably a formality. But turns out it wasn't just a formality. They actually voted to leave the European Union. And it was interesting to see not only the beginning, the the forethought before the polling to the reaction afterwards. Now, the, the voting was done a week ago Thursday. Uh, the results came out a week ago Friday. And later, Friday afternoon, the S&P comes out and downgrades Britain's credit from AAA to AA. Rationale behind that was, well, because they voted to leave the European Union. We're downgrading their credit. Now think about this for a minute. As of Friday afternoon, nothing has happened. Counted the votes. That's it. Uh, We have the results. That's it. But it could take as much as two years before Great Britain actually leaves formally the European Union. Now, I don't think it will. I think they will leave sooner rather than later. But what the heck's the S&P doing? Why are they doing that? What has changed on a Friday afternoon? That has to be politically motivated. It has to be simply S&P trying to poke them in the eye. The following Monday, the rest of the members of the European Union want to make English an unusable language in their discussions in Brussels. And in fact, one of the leaders, I forget who it was, uh, gave a speech in front of the uh, 
European Union leaders in Brussels, and he refused to do it in English. He did it in German or French or something else. So uh, schoolyard playground uh, attitudes here. European Union also came out and said, well, uh, let's don't delay this, Britain. Hurry up and leave. Don't let the door hit you in the butt. Now, once again, I was surprised at the vote, but I'm pleased with the vote. And I think that this could be, certainly could be, the beginning of the dissolution of the European Union as a whole. Now, that will take a long time long time. Do not do not take that statement as, okay, the spiral's begun. It's just a matter of weeks now before it's all gone. I don't think so. It was easier for Britain to leave the European Union uh, for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which is when they joined the European Union, um, they kept their own currency. They did not adopt the euro as their currency, as many of the countries in the European Union has. Now, when you have your own currency beforehand, it makes the decision to leave a lot easier because you don't have to to convert everything back again. You're already making your currency, in this case, uh, British pounds. Uh, Everything in your country is priced in British pounds. And all your trade agreements, everything you're used to, everything you do, is in your own currency. If you don't have your own currency, if you're another country in the European Union that wants to leave, uh, now you could have a much tougher time. Because the playground children have shown their attitude, and I could see a country having a very tough time to leave because of people in Brussels making it very difficult to leave, screwing up their exchange rates, screwing up their trade agreements, screwing up their banking, uh, screwing up everything just because they can and they're little babies. Now, I'm once again, I'm pleased that the Brexit happened. By the way, I hate bifurcated words like that, so sorry. I'm pleased that the Brits voted for their own sovereignty. 60% of the laws that uh, govern Great Britain are created in Brussels by a group of people from all the other countries in the European Union. I think the, the average person in Britain knew exactly what they were doing, knew exactly what they were voting for, did not succumb to the the fearful talk of other leaders, including their own, including President Obama, including George Soros. So I'm pleased to see it. It's encouraging to me. I said beforehand that I didn't think it would affect our economy very much. Now, our stock market took a major dive for a couple days, but it has since recovered. And uh, we're we're not seeing the Armageddon economics that was predicted. So 
I, I just don't see a big downfall. I don't see a big downfall for Great Britain. Yes, they're going to have to go through some hoops. They're going to have some tough days ahead uh, negotiating things. But I think they're ready for it. And I think they will do fine. Seems ironic to me that the middle class people, the average Joe, uh, stood up against the uh, tyranny of a group of people in another country trying to control them. Uh, I think it's ironic that this is our 4th of July weekend, and 240 years ago, we did exactly the same thing. Now, we did it to Britain. They were trying to control the colonies from Europe. Tell us what to do. Make our laws. Take our money. Taxes. And we rose up and maintained our sovereignty. Not unlike Britain has done today. Is this encouraging to me? Yes. Coming up a little later in the show, I'm going to talk about how we can stand up here again and what we should stand up against. Coming up next, John Tamney is going to be joining me. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation and author of the new book, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one. An economy of one with Gary Rathman. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is John Tamney. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, and he's a political economy editor at Forbes. We first talked to him on his other book, Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downtown Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. His new book just came out. It's called Who Needs the Fed? Love the title already. How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. John, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me on. You know, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, You have, I don't know how to put it, a knack of writing that makes it very conversational and very easy to read and and understand. So I I really appreciate the work you've done and and, uh, make sure we'll recommend that to everybody. One of, one of my favorite paragraphs in your book is in the middle of the first section where you talk about the Fed's enormous amount of prestige coming from a feckless political leader's obsequious economist hoping to be noticed and a clueless media. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I had to highlight that and make a point of that. But they want to manage the economy and bestow easy access to the economy's resources on all of us. You say that the only serious actors set access to credit, and these actors would never be so adolescent as to want to fix prices, let alone waste their time at the central bank. The markets judge each of us individually without regard to what the overbought officials at the Fed think. And that's a very powerful paragraph. And my whole theme of the show has been essentially an economy of one. Now, talk a little bit about your thoughts from an individual credit standpoint as one of the themes of this section. 
Well, as you well know, an economy is not a blob. It's just a collection of individuals. And, and that's why my book is so optimistic. Uh, the Fed is staffed with people who don't have a clue about why an economy would grow, trying to decree easy access to credit. But we see in the real economy that everyone's judged and it pays an interest rate based on, as though the Fed doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about Brian Grazer, uh, easily one of the most talented movie producers in the history of the industry. Splash, A Beautiful Mind, Parenthood, uh, uh, Apollo 13, uh, TV shows like Arrested Development and 24. But as he freely acknowledges, his attempts to access credit to pursue his film projects fail 90% of the time. You think about Silicon Valley. Supposedly credit's really easy there. But as evidenced by all the billionaire venture capitalists there, credit's very, very expensive. If you want to start up a business there, you're going to give up a big portion of it to a venture capitalist and, and even more in the form of stock options to potential employees. And so what we see in the real economy is there's no such thing as easy credit, and that's good. In the real economy, you must do something good to attain access to resources. It's those the, the Fed doesn't exist, and that's very healthy. Now, I've heard, uh, read several economists say that uh, all money is credit, and, and you kind of say the opposite. You mentioned that credit is not money. If credit isn't money, what, what is credit? Is, is it what individuals create in the economy? Absolutely. If, if credit were money, Haiti and Honduras would have as much credit flowing through their economy as we do in the United States. And, and mm-hmm. counterfeiting would not only be legal, but it would be encouraged. <laughs> but credit is real economic resources. To, to paraphrase Ludwig von Mises, when you borrow dollars, you're not borrowing dollars to stare lovingly at them. You're borrowing them for what they can attain, trucks, tractors, computers, desks, chairs, most of all labor. We are the credit. We produce the economy's resources. This is not something the Fed or any government can bestow on us. It's what we create first. The Fed has no private stash of credit that it can release in the economy. Hence, it's mythical for people to say, well, the Fed is going to be easy and increase credit. It cannot do that. Now, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit on the book because it's just so fascinating and, and our time is limited. But when you talk about easy credit and, and that kind of stuff, uh, or when the, the pundits talk about that, that's what the Fed talks about in, in zero interest rates. They're trying to encourage people to use their credit. Why has the Fed's monetary actions, uh, at least in recent history, been so ineffective? Why, why, why don't we have a booming economy at zero rates? Well, for one, the Fed is almost irrelevant. I mean, let's, the, the Fed says we're going to decree credit at 0%. I ask all the listeners to go out and try to access the economy's resources <laughs> at 0%. There's just no way you're going to do that. But the other thing, and, and this is another reason the book is so optimistic, the Fed's channel through which it tries to influence the U.S. economy is the U.S. banking system. Mm-hmm. Banks today represent 15, that's 1-5% of total lending, and that number is in free fall because most lending occurs well away from the banking system, and by logic it would. Banks are yesterday. They're a non-dynamic, hyper-regulated, stodgy source of credit. So 
you're not going to you're not going to start the next Microsoft with a bank loan. You're not going to start the next Amazon with a bank loan. So the Fed, to show you just how confused its economists are and how backwards it is, it thinks it can influence the economy through the U.S. banking system. Well, that banking system is dying before our eyes, thanks to market forces, but also horrible regulations from government. And so, with the d- decline of U.S. banking, the Fed's power. Is, is vanishing, and that's very good. Yeah, I, I would agree, and hence the, the title of the book, Who Needs the Fed? I mean, that alone grabbed me. But i got to take a break. Can you hang on for a couple minutes? I appreciate it. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. My guest is John Tamney. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation and author of the newly released book, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. I was fascinated by another section. You know, Warren Buffett is arguably uh, one of the greatest investors, stock pickers, stock investors that we've had. But you talk about the Clintons as well as other politicians on both sides of the aisle, that they are rich because of the federal government confiscating wealth from the creators and that most politicians would not be able to get rich in some of the other countries. Is this a good thing or a bad thing since it happens in a very rich country? And what makes a guy like Warren Buffett a good investor but a Senator Buffett a poor investor? Well, I suppose it's a good thing in the sense that we're lucky enough to live in the United States. Uh, we live in a country where abundant wealth is created. But one of the horrid trade-offs of it is that people like Hillary and Bill Clinton and people like Trent Lott, it's, it's bipartisan, they are able to leave office and earn major fortunes. They're able to get speaking fees that are in the six figures. Mm. Why is that? Is it because people are really interested in what they have to say? No, they can influence a government that spends nearly $4 trillion a year. And so the swagger of these arrogant politicians, their credit, as it were, is stolen. It's not theirs. We created their ability to, to earn a lot of wealth. They're not creating the next Microsoft or, or, or a, a, a car that we like to drive or, or a cancer cure. Their swagger was taken from us. And so that's a bad thing, but okay, we're a rich country. Um, I get, we wouldn't want to live in Haiti where the politicians have no swagger. As for Warren Buffett, He's a great investor, but he would be a terrible investor as a Senator Buffett, and he would for obvious reasons. There are no failures when you invest the public's money. You get to continue pursuing what makes no sense. In Silicon Valley, just about every startup there fails. But that's why it's so rich, because they quickly weed out the bad ones. But when you've got the government's money at your disposal, you can keep pursuing your darlings and never stop. And so bad ideas never die. Let's also add that even if Buffett thought, okay, this program is bad, it's not working, we need to cut funding for it, he's, let's face it, any government program or any government investment develops constituencies. It has politicians mm-hmm. backing it. So Buffett couldn't starve his losers. 
he'd have to continue funding those losers. Whereas as a private investor, he's always curtailing what makes no sense. He can't do that in government. And so that speaks to the point that it doesn't matter. It could be the freest thinker of all. Government cannot allocate our, 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 our resources effectively simply because there's no failure in government. I'm reminded of one of my economics professors back in the 70s when I was in college, and he said there's no end to the good do-gooders will do with other people's money. And it just seems to, to fit, you know, when government has no bottom line and they don't really care about the top line other than getting reelected, kind of explains why government is there. And, you know, one of the things that struck me hard, I have to admit, we're all familiar with the Laffer curve and Art Laffer, and one of the, the statements you made has stuck with me in that us conservatives, us free market people, uh, use the Laffer curve for the wrong argument. And I want to get, I want to hear you explain that. Oh, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I used to make the same argument. Let me be clear there that, okay, the beauty of tax cuts, when we reduce the burden of taxation on people, the economy mm -hmm. grows so much that government gets even more revenues. And we saw this in the 1920s, 60s, 1980s. We saw it with the capital gains cuts, tax cuts in the, in the late 90s. It's true. When you reduce the price on work, you frequently get more of it, and government collects more resources. Now, historically, what we free market types have said is, okay, give us our tax cuts. We'll give government its revenues in return. Let's make that trade-off. I argue in the book that that's no longer, and it never has been, a good trade-off, because once government gets revenues, politicians spend them, right. and it grows and grows and grows. Medicare was created in 1965 because the Kennedy-Johnson tax cuts showered the U.S. Treasury with abundant revenue. Suddenly they had the funds to start a $3 billion program. The prediction was that it would cost $12 billion by 1980. No, 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 no. It was $50 billion by then. It's going to be $1 trillion annually a cost by the 2020s. And so when you shower government with revenues, thanks to tax cuts, you actually neuter the genius of the tax cuts because those revenues lead to spending programs that grow and grow that represent a huge tax on the economy. And so this is not me arguing against tax cuts. Let's cut taxes so much that revenues actually decline. If, and if, in fact, revenues increase supply-siders and, and the, they should have – something in place that says the money must be returned because government only grows and that's the biggest tax of all yeah it, it was very enlightening for me and i got to tell you very rarely do i read a book or say to an author that you've changed my thinking dramatically but <laughs> that changed my thinking dramatically <laughs> well, i'm flattered so uh, we're gonna continue that theme for many many shows going forward you know, a lot of your, your book, you quote some, some terrific people. George Gilder, I've read all of his stuff. Henry Hazlitt, I, I've read a lot of his stuff. But one of the themes is of the individual. And it, it goes to everything from a bank doesn't give a man credit. He already has it. And you use Taylor Swift in, in real-life examples. Why is this such a foreign concept in the market today? And why do so many people not? really grasp that credit out there is you, the individual. 
Um, I think probably what's perverted the most is this idea that money is credit. Mm. And so people think, okay, well, we can fix a problem of no credit just by creating more money. But we know that doesn't work. And, And ultimately, if Bill Gates goes to the bank today and wants to borrow a million dollars, he could do it for next to nothing. He's the world's richest man. Mm-hmm. But if I go to the bank and want to borrow a million, they'd probably turn me down. Um, your credit is you. It's your track record. Taylor Swift could give up all of her worldly possessions, every single dollar and property she has, but she could walk into a bank today and borrow millions. And why is that? She is the credit. She tomorrow could go into a studio and create an album that would sell millions of copies. She could go on tour in the next year and earn tens of millions more. You are the credit. Mm-hmm. You're, you are, represent the ability to attain the economy's resources. That's not something government can bestow on you, and it's something we need to stress all the time. Government cannot create winners. Thank goodness it can. <laughs> you know, the, the title of your book is, is Who Needs the Fed? And in, in the last minute or so I, I have with you, I want to just cover all, uh, a lot of things. I hope we can have you back and and talk about this some more. But I've said for a long time, I'd like to end the Fed. Uh, Ron Paul was a big advocate of getting rid of the Fed. Back in the day when Greenspan was the chairman, you know, he, he did the same thing or similar things that the Fed chairmans are uh, are doing now from Bernanke to, to Janet Yellen. And yet yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, Greenspan comes out and says that it would be good if America went on a gold standard. One, what's your thoughts of that statement? And two, why has he changed from the time he was, you know, part of the Ayn Rand inner circle and a and a true gold bug to chairman of the Federal Reserve and being an anti-gold standard person? Now he's back to to being a gold standard person. One, what's your thought on the the gold standard? And two, how can we get rid of the Fed? I mean, is well, that, uh, well, let's face it. Uh, what is money? Money's just a measure, and so mm-hmm. a gold standard would be great. Um, I think if we absent a gold standard, I'm guessing companies like American Express could could create private money that we would love that would be stable, like a dollar defined in terms of gold. Uh, mm-hmm. Money's not money if it's not stable. So yes, on a gold standard. Um, if we had, if we had, if the dollar had been stable in the 2000s, there never, there quite simply never is 2008. Um, that was a function of a weak dollar that made consumption of housing very, very attractive. With a stable dollar, that would never have taken place. And I think that's what's driving Greenspan. Greenspan. When you go back to the 80s and 90s, the U.S. Treasury pursued a largely stable dollar, and so the economy boomed. If you look at the price, of the dollar price of gold from 83 to 97, it was fairly stable. Mm-hmm. And so it made Greenspan look good. But I think Greenspan, while the Fed became kind of full of himself, wait a second, I can manage the economy, and it was his undoing. My guess on the gold standard comment is he feels chastened by what happened. As I point out in the book, I think we overrate the Fed's role in 2008, Mm -hmm. but I think that that Greenspan realizes that when money floats around, bad things happen. He saw it up close. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see the evolution over 40, 50 years of, of his thought. We've been talking with John Tamney. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation and author of the newly released book, 
Who needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and robots can end the biggest bank in the world. John, uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. It's a terrific book, terrific book. We're going to recommend it to everybody. Put it up on the website. And I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. i got about three more pages of questions I'd like to, to spend thank with you. you so. Thank you so much for having me on, and, and really any time. What a fun discussion. It's fun to talk about the book with someone who really understands it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I make it a point to read everybody's book that I have on, and sometimes that's, that's a labor, but yours was wonderful to read, and it was truly enjoyable to go through. So once again, thank you so much for your time, and I uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Have a great day. Thanks, Thank Gary. you. Thanks, John. Up next... I think it'd be a good time to follow Great Britain's lead, especially on our Independence Day weekend. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. That was John Tamney, he's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation, one of my favorites. Great guy. Go out and buy his book, Who Needs the Fed? His previous book, Popular Economics, is also a great book. So uh, go pick that up. It's at Amazon, it's everywhere. Good guy. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, how the vote in in Great Britain to leave the European Union uh, is encouraging to me, and I think that we need to to take a lesson from that vote. And we got a couple of votes of our own. Now I'm not talking about the presidential election coming up in November. Certainly we got to vote. Certainly we got to make some changes there, but. The vote that Great Britain had uh, last week is on a much, much larger scale than voting for a new leader. I think that the two votes we need to think about is, one, not unlike Britain, we need to gain our own sovereignty back. President Obama is a new world order kind of guy, and I think Hillary Clinton following him will be a new world order kind of gal. And we have to fight against this international order, this international norms and principles and international law. Um, If you listen to President Obama's speech at the United Nations from September 2015, you will see what international order is all about and what their goal is is. So we need to vote against that and gain our own sovereignty. Um, You hear candidates say, well, that attitude means you want to go backwards and we want to move forward. We always want to move forward. Well, you know what? I don't want to move forward if the path we're on leads to destruction. If the end of the path we're on is a cliff, uh, time to turn around and go find a new path and yes, go back to some traditional values and traditional norms and mores of this country and what we were founded on. Second vote we need is, and I've said this many, many times before, 
Let's get the heck out of the U.N. And get the U.N. the heck out of this country. I don't know if you've been to New York and anywhere near the United Nations building. Um, These ambassadors to the United Nations uh, are above the law here. They'll park in the middle of the street. They can pull a gun out of their pocket, blow somebody's head off on the sidewalk, and there isn't a thing we can do about it. Time for them to leave. Time for us to get out of the United Nations. The United Nations is really no different than Brussels is in relation to the European Union. You notice, as a side note, you notice that all the talk about the Brexit, about Great Britain leaving the European Union, all the conversation was how bad it would be for the world, for the United States, for Britain, for Europe, if they left. There was nothing said that was good in reference to them staying. Nobody came out and said, well, if you stay, this is all the advantages you have for staying. Everything was about Armageddon and global meltdown and the end of the world as we know it if Great Britain left. Well, you know, Great Britain was a sovereign nation for a long time before the European Union. And the world didn't melt down then. And now the world's not going to melt down. We will see a a meltdown of the European Union. It'll take years, uh, cost a lot of money, maybe some lives. It's it's going to be ugly. But the United Nations, I think, is the next thing on President Obama's bucket list. I think he wants to be the head dog over the European nations, United Nations, I'm sorry. And I think that the amount of damage he would do there is exponentially greater than the amount of damage he's done the United States by being president. So we're going to start a new campaign. We've talked about ending the Fed. I still think ending the Fed is uh, a good thing, as John Tamney does, as many people do. we got to get rid of that institution out of our lives, and I will not let go of that. But we also got to get rid of the United Nations. I don't think that they're doing us any good. I don't think they're helping us in the world. And I really think that if President Obama became Secretary of the United Nations, um, this country would have some real big problems. We are the greatest country in the world. We're a little ill right now, not feeling our best not being our best, but we can become our best again. But regardless of being a little bit ill, still the greatest country in the world. 240 years ago, our founding fathers pledged their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor for that independence. Do I want to go backwards to those values? Darn right I do. It's a lot more difficult today to pledge your lives, your fortune, your sacred honor. But 
is just as important today as it was then. We need to get back to that America. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 